0: Hello, and welcome to The Double Double. My name is David Dixon, and it is Tuesday, December 29th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing safe, they are healthy as the battle against the coronavirus continues. Also want to wish anyone who was celebrating Christmas this past week, hope you all had a very merry Christmas and enjoyed the time spent uh, with your family members, It's always good to the holiday season, get to spend time with family, even if it is different this year in 2020, whether it's a lot of Zoom or it was small in person, hope everyone had a very happy holiday. Coming up today on the podcast is a really, really fun conversation I did earlier today with Max Sass. We break down the college football playoff games that are on Friday, Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson against Ohio State. We get really deep into the preview of it. I'm really excited for both these games. Had a great conversation with Coach Sass. So I'm pumped uh, for you guys all uh, to hear it. So I'm gonna hit the music and when I come back. This is my conversation from earlier today with Max Sass. All right, joining me now from his undisclosed location on the east coast to break down all things college football playoff it's my good friend head men's basketball coach of the pratt institute max ass coach what's going on
1: not much just mentally preparing for um you know some big college football games this week but i have to say david i know we're going to talk college football did you see going around Twitter? Um, all the stuff with KD didn't play against the Jazz last night, and people were posting pictures of Grayson Allen saying, "Like this is not the dude you want to see." Come out! <laughs> I, I just feel like I just want to say thank you to Twitter for being free because yes. the content
0: is unbelievable. There are there are a few times where you really really wonder how Twitter has remained free and why some of its best stuff isn't behind a paywall because there are there are. A few days a year, it's not often, but there are a few days a year where you're like, this website is great. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, but you know what? I
1: I also have to say it's also helpful because a lot of the stuff, like I have, I deep dive follow a lot of Ohio State accounts, Mm -hmm. which sort of then translates to a lot of other just elite college football program accounts.
0: And, you
1: know, I, I think that I feel so much more prepared in in reading twitter than i do is watching the games to talk about these things now
0: and it's really interesting you know i love the athletic website and sports illustrated does this too but a lot of sites now have specific reporters for each program so for ohio state clemson so we've talked a lot about clemson this year and just all the things that they the coaches and players have said well it's so easy to run through it all because grace Raynor, who's their athletic just clemson football reporter just like tweets out everything that they say. So it's just just like really easy to see everything uh, that's going on. And, you know, the press conferences yesterday and and today, you know, there's a lot of stuff said between those two programs. And so I'm just excited to get to dive right into it. Let's do it. So, you know, as I was prepping, we had had some calls to talk about the San Diego Padres and A.J. Prowler making moves for some pitchers. But, you know, baseball season's months away. This is College Football Playoff Week. It is media day frenzy. I'll record this on Tuesday, yesterday, today, leading up to this whole game. Coaches are playing coy about what they're trying to do, doing things like saying, hey, this team, they're really, really good. We have a lot of respect for them, but you know, we're, 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 we think we're better and we're going to go out there and win by 40. In case you haven't heard, the four playoff teams are Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State and Notre Dame. The there's games will played on New Year's Day, 4 o'clock and 8 o'clock. First game is Alabama-Notre Dame, and then the second game at 8 o'clock is Clemson versus Ohio State. We're going to break this one down first. It's your team. It's the most interesting game. A rematch of last year's Fiesta Bowl in the semifinals that Clemson won 29-23. to 23. And in this uh, uh-
1: Ahem, I'm pretty sure I read Ohio State Twitter this week, and it seems that the referees won 29 to 23. No, sorry. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> Look, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. The other, David, the other joke that I actually bit my tongue on, that I guess I'm not biting my tongue on, is the day works out nicely because we're only going to have to watch the first quarter of the Alabama Notre Dame <laughs> game before that game is over. So we have plenty of time for a nice long dinner before the real game starts at eight o'clock.
0: Ex- exactly. So. Clemson won that game last year twenty nine to twenty three they are favored in this year's game by seven and a half points which seems like a lot to me I think these teams are evenly matched but just as an Ohio State fan let's start here you're an Ohio State fan seeing you were drawn against Clemson again in the semifinals just what were your initial thoughts as an as an Ohio State fan seeing the Tigers again and just how these two teams match up
1: uh my reaction was oh bleep Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's just not been good like even dating back to the fiesta bowl when like Taj Boyd was throwing to Sammy Watkins in, in like 2014 or whatever year that was I just have nightmares about playing Clemson um you know last year was just a really heartbreaking one yeah um But Clemson's really good, and I think, you know, I think the line is 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 right on, Um, at least in the sense, at least in the sense that Clemson probably played their best game of the year most recently, and Ohio State probably had their worst performance of the year in their most recent game. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so much of this game, which I know I'm not trying to steal your thunder, is going to be about the quarterback matchup, and one quarterback. For Clemson is firing on all cylinders, and the biggest thing he's got to deal with is, you know, probably searching for a house in Jacksonville at this point. Whereas the other one is coming off a sprained wrist. He made a statement the other day, you know, obviously we're talking about Justin Fields now. Justin Fields made a statement that he's not prepared for a game and been in the shape he's been in, you know, this season until now. Well, as an Ohio State fan, that bothers me. I had to sit through. Uh, you know, how many Tom Rinaldi pieces about Justin Fields going to a plant-based diet in the offseason? Like, <laughs> like what the heck? You know, like, what, what, what are we switching to now? So, um, I just feel like the way the momentum's gone, I don't see how Vegas could put that line any lower.
0: I also wonder Ohio State has had well-documented COVID uh, concerns within their programs. They had their own game get canceled because of virus issues in their program. Then they played a game with down a lot of guys who are not active. Then the obviously game against Michigan gets postponed. Then they were down a bunch of stars in the big 10 championship game, maybe about 15 to 20 players. Total were not active in that game because of COVID positives or contact tracing. It seems like to me with no clear sense of who will be active in this game for Ohio state, that, that the line I think is a little higher than it should be. I think okay. I think Clemson should have been favored by about four, four and a half points. Um especially just with the on the flip side, the COVID potential issues with Clemson of we don't know who's gonna necessarily suit up for them. We haven't heard anything about guys testing positive, but that can all change very, very quickly as we know. So I would have put it at around four and a half, especially because even though as we'll talk about Ohio State breaking news that did not play the same number of games as Clemson, they are still really, really good. (laughs) They are still really good.
1: Yeah, they are. And I think the line's going to end up settling back around six and a half. Personally, um, Chris Olave practiced yesterday. Mm -hmm. Ohio State confirmed that. Um, I I think it's going to be some stuff like – Think about the betting markets, right? And it's going to change on a whim in so many ways, right? We're going to see a Twitter or Instagram video of Justin Fields uncorking a sixty-yard pass, and everyone's going to go, "Oh, his wrist
0: is fine," and bet on Ohio State, and all of a sudden the line's going to move. So also, also, just so everyone understands, the betting line is created so that you get half, you get like people to boat to, so you get people to bet both sides. It's it's set st- strategically so that the book makes money no matter who wins, or at least that's the goal, right. right? So it is a very good indicator of who they think is favored, but it's also because they know that a lot of casual football fans will be like, wait, Clemson has this Trevor Lawrence guy who's really good. I'm going to bet on them and, and just seeing they the get records.
1: The crud out of Notre Dame.
0: Yes, yes. They destroyed them. So before we get into the co- quarterbacks, we got to talk about all the talk and the bulletin board material leading up this week, primarily from the coaches. Now it's been a running segment on this podcast for this whole college football season about Dabo Sweeney and what he's saying to the media. You think he's a genius. I think he's annoying, but smart in right, right. uh, Getting his team ready to play. Like you said, but I think he needs better advice. He is just doubling and tripling down on, him putting Ohio State 11th in his coaches ranking poll, he was saying he he said yesterday that he cares a lot about his poll. He thinks a lot about it. He puts a lot of effort into it, but he just said that he didn't think it was fair that some teams played more games than than they did. Okay, but you're still talking about it like saying that they're the 11th best team, they're 11th, well, then also saying but they're really good and deserve to be in the playoff. Like <laughs> All you're doing is adding fuel for these Ohio State players saying, these guys don't think we deserve to be on the same field as them. That's just extra motivation.
1: It Davos Sweeney is puzzling.
0: Yes, very puzzling.
1: Perhaps they come out and beat Ohio State by 40, and and his players are sitting there going – yeah, we had to treat them like they were the 11th best team in the country. And we're all here going, Oh my God, we got to change the way we coach forever. Like that's the best motivational tactic I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Um, but more likely, I think Dab was trying to move the goalposts a little bit away yeah. from like, the actual content and issues of, of different things. And let's talk about that instead
0: of, you know, putting more pressure on, Hey, Trevor Lawrence or whatever. Yeah. So,
1: I, I think that you know Ryan day actually fired a shot back yesterday and we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon mm-hmm. um in in yesterday's media day on Monday he he fired a shot back and sort of hinted at Brent venables and and Clemson's reputation for stealing signs yes so um there's a little bit um it, it, it's gonna start going both ways yeah. I You know, and and this is obviously just coming from me as an Ohio State fan, but, you know, when Baker Mayfield beat Ohio State in the horseshoe and
0: planted the Oklahoma flag Uh on the block O at the 50-yard line,
1: like, that was not things that people forgot, Mm -hmm. and... To the point where two years after it happened, three years after it happened, excuse me, Nick Bosa sacked Baker Mayfield in an NFL game. Yeah. And then tended to wave and plant the flag next to him. Yes. Yeah. Like, that was a long game. And my point of that is that, like, Ohio State fans do not forget. No. Like, Sean Wade, the first-team All-American cornerback for Ohio State, his dad was tweeting last night, you know, do we know who's refereeing the game? We don't want the <laughs> SEC refs from last year. Like things do not get forgotten, and and I legitimately think stuff is going to catch up to Dabo. I don't mean it in the sense of like he's going to get fired or or, or, you know anything bad's going to happen. But I would not be shocked if Ohio State, and I have no inside information, but I would not be shocked if they win this game, and you know instead of putting on Rose Bowl, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Sugar Bowl champion T-shirts. They put on shirts that say, like, best 11th-ranked team in the
0: country. <laughs>
1: and and, and I, I'm not saying it to be funny. I yeah. really think, like, that drives them. Ohio State, uh, Urban Meyer started it and Ryan Days continued it. Like, those dudes do not forget.
0: Also, just talking about what's driving this Ohio State team, They're, they have an offensive lineman named Wyatt Davis who, uh, you know, I'm not a great judge of interior line play. I think that it's really hard to judge on television and considering I've never really played football before. But he was a first-team All-American. He's clearly very, very good. Yes. He said that they had a whole winter offseason program dedicated to avenging the loss last year against Clemson. I've read things that they've had that score, 29-23, up in the weight room, in the locker room, a couple meeting rooms, stuff like that where... This Ohio State team uh, felt like they were just as good as Clemson, maybe even better than they were last year, and that they had a real chance to win that game, and it kind of slipped away, and they want to get back and prove that they can compete and beat anybody in the country and that they can be national champions. We talk about just the drive of this team. They're already thinking about Clemson all offseason, all season, getting back to this moment, and... You don't need to add fuel to the fire if you're the Clemson guys who are saying, we don't really think that this is a rivalry. We, we, we think that they have more problems with us than we do with them. Like, that's well, just adding to it's them. Been, it's been
1: one-sided, yeah. right? It's been one-sided in a lot of ways. But, you know, David, I think the the, the thing that's made – first of all, the the bulletin board and the score on the walls doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Um for anybody that's read Urban Meyer's book above the line, and I highly recommend it, you know, Urban started doing things like this. Like they won a national championship in 2015 and, but they lost to Virginia tech. It wasn't a perfect season. And they had scores from the Virginia tech game, you know, up like not, you know, that's the kind of thing that they do. But this rivalry in a lot of ways has extended outside of the playing field and Mm -hmm. into the recruiting trail. Because
0: yes. yes,
1: Ohio State is, you know, the number two class in the country right now. Clemson's got a top five class. Last year, Clemson, the number two class in the country, I believe. But Clemson was not recruiting at the same level as Ohio State was at the start of Dabo's run. Mm-hmm. They are now, and they are going head to head for guys. Yeah. Uh, Bo Collins and Troy Stelato, both wide receivers committed to Clemson. Ohio State, very interested in. Yeah. Uh, Emeka Buka good fireback from Ohio State, number one wide receiver in the country. Clemson was in his top four. How about Jordan Hancock? Jordan Hancock's the number, I believe, four uh, cornerback in the country, committed to Clemson, flipped to Ohio State. Clemson's only had two decommitments in their recruiting class over the past like five years. Yeah. And one of them was Jordan Hancock, the other was Corey Foreman, the number one player in the country this year. So if that doesn't tell you that this is about more than just the game between
0: the lines I, I don't know what else does and and it's a it's a really fair point you bring up about the recruiting because you can read into which school has a higher ranked class but the point is that that stuff can change year to year between 2 to 4 and 5 and 1 all on a yeah. couple different guys who commit that year but these as as you said these two schools compete at the exact same level for pretty much the exact same kids and even though there isn't the summer basketball aspect of different AAU tournaments, where you have all the coaches sitting in a circle and chairs like around the court of Coach K, Calipari, Bill Self, really the blue bloods, <laughs> all watching the same kid at the same time, Coach Ryan Day and Coach Davosweeney know that they're going to they're, they're recruiting the same kids and they're making competing pitches and winning these games you know some people say that it doesn't matter that much but it it all has a factor of which team is playing for the national championship which team is on tv the most who's doing all the segments on espn getting talked about the most it all kind of adds up and it'll just be really interesting because ryan day is it seems like he may not be a college football lifer because he's young enough that he hasn't turned down all the NFL jobs that it seems like he may or at least he's been rumored to jump to the NFL Dabo's this kind of college ball lifer it seems right who just lives and breathes Clemson and college football that you know it's it's interesting when you add the recruiting element of Dabo's like hey I'm here I want to be here forever all my coordinators are here Ohio State like you know they're really good but they're not at our level which is really interesting because as you said for a really long time Clemson wasn't at Ohio State's level which is really interesting
1: it is really interesting and and I think a lot of the rivalry does go back to recruiting in a lot of ways in in one of Urban Meyer's last couple years there was an offensive tackle he was the number two offensive tackle in the country his name is Jackson Carmen. he starts now for, for Clemson he's a very very talented player but he's from Ohio mm-hmm. and everyone assumed he would go to Ohio State and he chose Clemson and it came out that a lot of the reason he chose Clemson was because Dabo and Clemson had you know I, I say this with a little bit of whatever but negative recruited against Ohio State yeah. hey like Urban Meyer's not going to be there for your entire career uh you know But that's what I mean by negative recruiting yeah. and I think that caused a lot of problems, and, and there was a very interesting point. Uh, Jeremy Birmingham is – he works for Letterman, com, and he is one of the most tied-in recruiting analysts in the country, but specifically to Ohio State. And there was a class of 2022 offensive lineman who actually is from Ohio but just committed to Clemson, and Jeremy Birmingham made the point that very much like Jackson Carmen, personality types matter, sometimes as much as location – and Clemson is a much more laid-back vibe, right? Like, you are in Clemson, South Carolina. Whereas the program that Urban Mar- Urban Meyer created and passed on to Ryan Day and still has, you know, Mick Marotti, his strength and conditioning coach, is, the way Jeremy Birmingham described it, was just 24-7 intensity. Yeah. And some prospects are just not built for that. Some are, but some aren't. And I just think it's interesting that this sort of dichotomy in recruiting is pulling kids out of different states, right? Like Ohio yeah. State, running back out of North Carolina this year, uh, Evan Pryor, that if I'm not misunderstood, I, I think Clemson was at least interested in. Yeah. So it, it, I think recruiting is where we're seeing it more commonly, but it manifests in these biggest games of the year.
0: And before we get into the quarterbacks, because they've had an interesting recruiting thing, just to go back to what... You mentioned about the sign stealing and Ryan Day insinuating that Brent Venables and the Clemson defensive staff are really good at sign stealing. Just want to make it clear. There's nothing against the rules about sign stealing as long as you don't use technology to figure it out like the spy gate like the Patriots did or what the Houston Astros did with different signals uh, with videotaping and some type of formula. Right. If if you watch college football, you see that there's like the four backup quarterbacks are all holding up these giant signs with different like cartoons and letters and those like weird things that somehow mean something. There are, there are a lot of ways to hide your signals in college football. You can use the quarterback wristband, you can huddle, you can just change signs frequently. There are a lot of things you can do, but I think that's an interesting thing to to, to bring up and kind of a segue into this next topic about the quarterbacks because these are two really, really good quarterbacks and both teams are going to try to do whatever they can to get an advantage to slow down Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields who are likely two of the top four picks depending on where Justin Fields goes and how the whole draft order lines up and who needs a quarterback and who doesn't, right? But... For,
1: absolutely. And David, just to yeah. really quickly touch back on it part of the reason it
0: came to promise was pat 40 wrote an entire piece for sports illustrated in early great November piece yeah about the sign stealing and how they
1: do it and then you know miami's offense coordinator Rhett lashley said they were known well for doing it brian kelly notre dame's head coach commented on it, it it's not like an open secret it's no. just literally an open discussion yeah. at this point
0: yeah
1: but, uh, go ahead because you were making an excellent Point
0: about the quarterbacks. So when, when I talked about this a little bit last year when, when these two teams played, but Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields have been linked pretty much their entire uh, athletic lives because they both are from Georgia, even though they didn't compete in Georgia, it, at the high school level, their schools were in you know the different class A or AA rankings, so they didn't really play. They were both from Georgia, number one and two quarterbacks in the state. They were the number one and number two prospects in the country, and since they both played the same position, they did the Elite 11 together. They did the Under Armour All-American game. like They did all of the high school all-star stuff together, and they competed the whole time. Justin Fields started at in-state Georgia. Lawrence went to Clemson. Hey, Dave, just yeah. quickly, you mentioned that they did the Elite 11 together. Who,
1: mm. who was named
0: the MVP of that? Well, that's the really interesting part is that Justin Fields won the Elite 11 mm. MVP. Okay, just checking. And, just checking. And then he, But then he goes to Georgia and doesn't beat out Jake Fromm, who, yes, as a true freshman, led them to the national championship game. Justin Fields then is the backup as a freshman, while... His high school, I don't want to say rival because I don't know how close they were or how much of a rivalry, but the only player ranked ahead of him in high school at his position takes over from Kelly Bryant, who made the playoff the year before, four games in, and takes him to the national championship and wins the national championship in dominating fashion over Alabama. Fields then transfers from Georgia to Ohio State. I don't know how he got immediate waiver or what, you know. There, there was, there was, so he played baseball. And, okay. Um, one of the players on the baseball team used some racial epith- epithets and
1: gotcha. uh, slurs towards him. And and that was uh, the basis for his waiver. Gotcha.
0: So he ends up at Ohio State and wins the starting job. And he starts. And then they meet in the playoff last year. They were both uh, had great seasons. I think they were both Heisman finalists. Uh, and now they're matching up again for a chance to go to the national championship the only thing that would make this better is if if it was the national championship game, but this is a pretty close second. You obviously are a Justin Fields guy because he is your quarterback, but just these two just seem linked and they were, they're just going to keep battling throughout their NFL careers. Yeah, it it does feel that way. I mean, imagine 21 miles separate high schools. It's, and it's
1: crazy. I think that, um, and there's actually a really good article, um, 24 seven sports. Chris Hummer wrote it um, right before last year's matchup. Uh, So it was December 25th, 2019, if anyone wants to go find it. And it was um, an oral history of, of some of the people involved, but I think that Justin Fields in a lot of ways has had higher high points. Um, You know, Justin Fields started his first like two or three games this year uh, with more touchdowns than incompletions. You know, last year yeah. he had, what was it, 55 touchdowns at three interceptions, and two of them were in the were in the Clemson game. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas Trevor Lawrence has just, not to say he has not been great, he has been great. He's been elite, in fact. He won a national championship as a true freshman. But there's something a little bit less sexy about solid in a lot of ways, at least for the, the fan. Um, so it's not to say that he can't, Trevor Lawrence can't have the highs that Justin Lawrence Justin Fields, excuse me, has. It just feels like Justin uh Fields goes up and down a little bit more than Trevor Lawrence.
0: Yeah, so yeah, so for reference for what you were talking about about last season. Justin Fields last season threw for 3200 yards, 67% completion percentage, 41 touchdowns and 3 interceptions where his last interception was a miscommunication on the final play of the game against Clemson in the semifinal where he had to force the ball down the field anyway to, to to try to make a play. It was unfortunate that it was intercepted, but you know, that that one wasn't necessarily like an indictment on him in my opinion. But if you take that interception away, he went forty one touchdowns and two interceptions. Like just an absolutely ridiculous season and in a shortened year this year. You know, 15 touchdowns, five interceptions, 1,500 yards in in six games. He struggled against Indiana, and he struggled against Northwestern. And I think that your point about consistency is really, really interesting and really valid because he has played great at times. He had, I'm just l- looking at it now, he had 11 incompletions through the first three weeks of the season. And yeah, ridiculous right like he just and, adds, uh, and 11 touchdowns and against
1: the top 10 Penn State team by the way I know they end yeah. up not being that great
0: but but it's it's just it's just weird watching Fields play because you're like he is really good but he has struggled this year and you could say against Northwestern it was his thumb injury and not having some top receivers and whatever happened against Indiana uh everyone can you know People can't have a bad game. They still won the game. but
1: Now, and the other thing to keep in mind is that for his career, he's thrown 60 touchdown passes and eight interceptions. Now, five of those eight interceptions came against Indiana and Northwestern, which are two of his last three games. So a little bit worrisome. I I, I mean, um, Michigan State game, he didn't go over 200 yards. Um, But, I I mean, if you just look at the game log from Nebraska – he completed over 95% of his passes. Yeah. <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> like, it's actually insane. And it'll be interesting, you know, you feel bad for him because last year for the playoff, he had a he had a knee injury. I think he t- tweaked or sprained his MCL. Yeah, he was wearing a brace. So he was wearing a big knee brace. So he wasn't as mobile getting outside of the pocket as he would have liked to be and really, you know, Ohio state would have liked him to be for offensive creativity. Now he has this weird thumb injury where they're not really saying anything about, except that just like he hurt his thumb against Northwestern. Um, so you want him to be at full strength because except for Trevor Lawrence, having COVID before the Notre Dame game, he has been pretty healthy throughout his entire college career, which helps lead to his consistency.
1: It's just remarkable to me. Now, Trevor Lawrence has played seven more games in his college career mm-hmm. than Justin Fields, and that's including the twelve games at Georgia where he threw a combined, you know, under twenty-five passes. Yeah. So, if you just say games started, uh, Justin Fields has started twenty games, um, and the um, and has thrown. 57 touchdowns and rushed for, uh, and rushed for 15 touchdowns. Yeah. So uh, help me with my math. You're the you're the you're the econ. What's that? 72.
0: Yeah, it, it's a lot of touchdowns. <laughs>
1: in in only 20 games. Whereas you then look at you know Trevor Lawrence who 88 career touchdowns, but in 39 games, it, it, it's like. You, you know, you're, you're sort of in this position where it's like you can't go wrong with either one of these guys. I mean, no. uh, uh, Trevor Lawrence has thrown a few more interceptions. Justin Fields has proven to be a little bit better uh, runner, but Trevor Lawrence has now run for almost 1,000 yards in his career, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, including that enormous one in the playoff game last year.
0: Yeah, I, we're going to talk about that in, in, in a second, but in terms of what these teams need to do, it's Ohio State's secondary has been their weak point on defense uh, this this whole season. So Lawrence and this Clemson offense is explosive. They they can hit you. They can beat you slow with long sustained drives up and down the field, and they can also attack very quickly with big plays. and you know, this is going to sound like, yes, every football team needs to do this, but especially in this game, Ohio State has to prevent the big play, and they have to prevent not just the big completions, but also these pass interference calls that give 30 yards or these holdings. Like They just have especially
1: to... Especially the ones on third down.
0: Yeah. They have to keep just, just keep the ball in front of you and and rely on your tackling ability and just say, look, Trevor, like Go 40 for 52 or 48 for 55, but you're not going to be this deep at all. We're going to make you, you know, we're, we're going to just contain and bend, don't break defense and just knock you up any big plays. I think that that's such a good point. And last year, part of the reason Ohio State was so unbelievably good was because they contained
1: big plays yeah, uh, in, in a way that they had really struggled to the year before. And And that year before was, of course, uh, Urban Meyer and Greg Shiano's last year running the defense before Ryan Day came in full time and made some changes. But the thing that I think is not getting enough attention is that while Ohio State lost three starters from their secondary last year, right, Jeff Okuda, best cornerback in the country, third overall pick to the Lions, Damon Arnett, first round pick to the las vegas raiders at cornerback and then jordan fuller who was their deep safety who's now i believe starting for the rams even though he was a late round pick those hurt i don't think they hurt as much as losing chase young yeah because it feels as good as the ohio state defensive line has been this year having maybe like the best defensive college football player potentially of all time uh, pressuring the quarterback changes the way you do things and just makes the secondary's life so much easier. And I think we're spending too much time focusing on the back end personnel and not enough focusing on what Chase Young did. Like look at what he's doing for the for the excuse me, the Washington football team this
0: year. Yeah. For I, I, Yeah. He, he's like look, he he was a game-changing talent and it's obviously yes, he will be missed by this Ohio State team, but they have if they also have to keep Lawrence in the pocket, and this brings us to kind of like the next thing that, that we want to talk about is just like the running games of both of these teams, which is that they, don't, they may not have a Chase Young or a Bosa brother-type pass rusher who could change the game and just change like how a team game plans, but this Ohio State team can still get after the passer because they may not have a top-two pick this year on on their defensive line, but they have a lot of talent up there, and I'm excited to see what they do with with like the bright lights. You know, like the spotlight's going to be on them, and someone's going to need to make a play.
1: I, I agree. I think um, one of the guys who's been unbelievable has been Haskell Garrett, which is miraculous considering that he was literally shot in the face trying to break up a fight just a month before the season. Um, he was pro-football-focused first-team All-American, you know, a couple other different first-team All-Americans, and then somehow Big Ten third-team. But he's a guy who has picked up a lot of the slack, Mm -hmm. and I think just being solid up the middle has allowed some of the younger, really talented, but less experienced guys like Tyreek Smith to rush off the edge. Um, You know, in the Northwestern game, Ohio State was missing Baron Browning, who is a former five-star and he's a starting linebacker for them. He's their best pass rusher from that linebacker spot, and I think that dynamism was missed against Northwestern in a lot of ways. He's a big play guy defensively, um, in a
0: good way. In a good way, yeah. Uh, and so I think that if they're healthy,
1: there are contributors that can be there that don't have Chase Young's reputation.
0: It's also it's it's interesting because we're talking about how important it will be to get after Lawrence. But Travis Etienne is their most dynamic offensive player. They're running back. He has over 1,400 yards from scrimmage this year. It feels like in every single big game Clemson has played in during Etienne's career there, he finds the end zone or usually finds the end zone multiple times. I don't know what a bad day for him would look like or what a good day for Ohio (laughs) State would be containing him but in my mind it's like 110 scrimmage yards like if you could keep him to that number or below because he's a monster he's a beast they find ways to get him the ball whether it's through just direct handoffs delayed handoffs screen passes dump downs they they find a way to get him in space and he's a really dynamic player
1: so a great example of it is last year's semifinal game against Ohio State. Ten rushes for 36 yards, mm-hmm. Okay, but three receptions for 98 yards, yeah. including two touchdowns. And and that was in a lot of ways the difference, because Ohio State really keyed in on Travis Etienne last year. They felt like they could cover uh, the receivers, but they felt like if they could stop the running back, they were going to win that game. And for a long time, they were. And Etienne broke one big play out of the backfield on a pass. And Lawrence had a big rush. Mm-hmm. And those were the game-breaking plays, you know, to... Sorry, I have to bring it up. To go along with the ejection of Sean Wade for what I believe is a bogus um, targeting call. And the scoop and score that got called back. But the point being, they contained ETN. Etienne. But the thing about Travis Etienne is you don't really contain him, right? Like, you mm-hmm. can hold him to 36 rushing yards... And then all of a sudden he breaks one enormous play yeah. uh, in the passing game. And it's like, well, everything's for, for squat now.
0: Yeah. He's he's a lot like Alvin Kamara for the Saints in that we yeah. could comparison. hold him down, hold him down, and then this, he'll, he's just so good that he'll just – he all he needs is one big play. And Lawrence's run last year when he ran for a 60-plus yard touchdown, juking people down the field. That was the most impressive play he made, in in my opinion, his whole college career thus far. The Ohio State play? Yeah, because, so, because one, he proved that he could run, and he's pretty fast with his long, you know, he's 6'6", he's got a yeah. long stride. He's a big boy. But it's it was also completely changed the entire momentum of that game, and that's not the, the reason why I think Ohio State lost the game last year, but it it was the most impressive play he's made yes. and, and and this is good good no i was going to say and then after the game ohio state said their coach were like look we weren't as dialed into him as a runner up to that point because when you look at lawrence's game log he doesn't really run when he doesn't have to but when he does run he's really good at it so he's not going to catch anyone by surprise this time around in the semifinals on o- on ohio state but it's also as hard as hard as it is to dial in on Travis Etienne running and Lawrence and the receivers. <laughs> it's it's also just you know contain right the the whole theme for this Ohio State defense is contain. Don't let the big play happen.
1: And you're, you're right. And if you go back and watch that play, not to get too nerdy here, but the Jordan Fuller was out for that play. Jordan Fuller was their deep safety, their most reliable tackler. He was out that play. Josh Proctor, a young, talented kid from Oklahoma who's been playing a lot this year, was in on that play, and he missed the tackle. Mm-hmm. He went from what would have been a 17, 18-yard run if he makes that tackle to a 50, 60-yard touchdown there. Yeah, and, and, and that's a huge issue because they missed that solidity of Jordan Fuller. And Marcus Hooker, Malik's younger brother, has been playing that position a lot along with Josh Proctor Ohio State this year, and part of the reason they've given up more big plays is they're lacking the solidity they had last year, and they're not making that final tackle at the 18 yard mark where they would have last year.
0: And on an even nerdier point of just how awesome Lawrence is, is that he read that play the whole time. He, yeah, because one of the linebackers jumped into a certain gap when they were rushing him, and he said, All right, well, you. Ditched this wide open gap. I'm just going to take it. And he just made one guy miss. And yes, you know, it was a missed tackle. But in a one on one situation, sometimes, you know, all that all needs to happen is just you just need to make one guy miss. And exactly. And, the and real, he did. And, and he did. And so for all of our talk about the running and some of the defensive line play, on the flip side, we got to talk about the offensive line. Yeah. I have a question for you. Okay. In Davos we need to run, in his 12 years. Oh, Josh. They've been really, really good at running the football. They've had awesome quarterbacks. Taj Boyd, Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence. Kelly Bryant was very good. Do you know how many offensive linemen they have had drafted in the NFL?
1: Yeah, I, I well, I, I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but
0: I think one. Mitch Hyatt, maybe? It's less than five. And for a team that has been able to run the ball, Control games at the line of scrimmage with physicality. Compete against Alabama defensive lines, Ohio State defensive lines, other good defensive lines in the ACC. They don't get enough credit because they don't have that. They don't have like the stud tackle who's going to be a first-round pick. But right.
1: they—they're starting to do that. But they had not, and
0: that's why their run made no sense. Yeah, <laughs> but they they're just a group of guys who on the offensive line who are just really really good and don't get the the type of professional attention for whatever reason I'm not an expert on offensive line play by by any means but they're going up against all these future NFL defensive linemen a lot of the times and they're holding their own and so I think that'll be really interesting to see these two offensive lines for both Ohio State and Clemson because as much as we've talked about Travis Etienne and, and uh, Trevor Lawrence, we've Justin Fields can, can move with his legs. You had Master Teague for Ohio State, but then also the hero of the Big Ten championship game, Trey Sermon, who's a big physical runner. Ohio State has an ability to run the ball as well, and the offensive line is going to be key. Yeah,
1: and Ohio State's offensive line has been very, very good this year um and that was what a lot of the scare for the michigan state game was at first right because uh, they were missing three out of five stars yeah um i mean this ohio state team has you know nick Petit frere is starting at right tackle he was the number one offensive tackle in the country uh wyatt davis five-star recruit best right uh probably i think he was the number one interior lineman in the country that year coming out um Josh Myers is starting at center. He was a five-star uh, guard. I think he was the number two offensive guard in the country. Harry Miller, starting at left guard, five-star. He was like the number three or four interior lineman in the country. And then their left tackle, Thayer Mumford, is actually an interesting one. He was a guy they flipped from Minnesota. He was a three-star in the lowest-ranked non-kicker uh, punter in that class when he came out. But Interesting. they like They are just absolutely loaded up front. And they've been really good. Coach Greg Studrawa has done a great job with them. Um, And it's made a huge difference because Fields holds the ball a little bit too long, right? That's Mm -hmm. sort of always been the knock on him. Yeah. And he puts these guys into tough spots. And they're holding up pretty gosh darn well. And they don't have J.K. Dobbins this year. No. But they're still paving the way. I mean, Trey Sermon is good master Teague is good, but they're not great. I mean, Trey Sermon looked great. Don't get me wrong in the last game, but like those guys are not, they don't have the same, um, NFL future as, you know, former Ohio state running backs, like Zeke, uh, Zeke Elliott or, or JK Dobbins, or excuse me, you know, even guys that are coming in Travion Henderson, like people are already talking about giving him the job. So these guys are not hyped. It's, they do a very good job at being solid generally Mm. um trace Urban obviously went way above solid in the big 10 championship but it is the offensive line that's doing it it's the offensive line that's doing it and the other thing that needs to be given a lot of credit for and this started under urban meyer who was a former wide receivers coach but brian hartline's wide receiver group might be the best blocking perimeter guys in the entire country and that is a huge reason why they're having success running the ball because if it gets to the perimeter, they feel like they have the advantage there.
0: That's interesting. That's something I hadn't noticed. I, I will admit, when I'm watching these games, I'm not super dialed into wide receiver blocking. But uh, but I've read a bunch of stories about Brian Hartline and how just of how he's been able to to connect with with the players at Ohio State with with their wide receivers because they've had a bunch of really good wide receivers. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, and Hopefully that, that group is fully healthy and, and ready to go because we talked about this last week, but a couple of the mistakes Fields had was just clearly just like yep, yep. not the same trust or, or understanding of the offense just because not a lot of time spent together on, on the field. You make a, a good point about the running backs not being one lead NFL future back, but as proven in college football and even in the NFL, running back by committees can work because Absolutely. especially when you have two different types of runners in Master Teague and Trey Sermon they can they can affect defense and and do different things they'll they'll also need to be good blockers as well in this game uh but we'll see what happens because when Ohio State gets down into the red zone they have to execute whether it's with the running game of Teague or yep. Sermon yep. or with Fields this is in my opinion, the reason why Ohio State lost last year to Clemson was You're right. You're the right. first four scoring possessions, you guys made scored one touchdown and kicked three field goals.
1: And I believe at least two, if not all three, were in the red zone.
0: Yeah, so the first possession of the game, you guys got to the four-yard line, kicked a field goal. I understand you, you want the points and to set the tone and, and trust the defense, but against a team as good as as as, as Clemson is, you got to put the ball in the end zone because it puts so much pressure on Clemson to do the same thing that uh, that that's something, even though Ohio State has, g- has a good kicking game and are successful at field goals and extra points, they got to score touchdowns. And it seems stupid to say, like, yes, of course, in football, the team that scores the most po- points will win <laughs> and touchdowns are important, but like. I'm talking more about the, the mentality part of it of you've worked all off season, all summer, all fall with this, with this game and this matchup in mind. And if you get in inside the 10 or inside the five and you're kicking field goals on fourth down, that just doesn't, it just doesn't hang together for me. Like, Punch it Punch it in the end zone. Stick it to Clemson. Like, if you want this game, go and win it. Like, and go win it by taking the risk and going for it on fourth down to score the touchdown.
1: Yeah, and, and this year, I, I actually just pulled it up, Ohio State is 17th in the country. Um, they've converted 71, just shy of 71.5% of their fourth down conversions this year, which is up from last year where they were in the, the low 60s. So, mm-hmm. um, they're definitely having some success doing that. I think a lot of it, just from my own eyes, has been um, a lot of the, the crossing routes and rub routes from with their wide receivers. Um, but I also wouldn't be shocked if we see a little bit more Justin Fields' run game
0: um, yeah. and
1: we sort of feel like JT Barrett's back.
0: <laughs> the read option is a great play when you use it in In the right setting and especially in, in the goal line that's something Clemson Does really well with Lawrence And ETN is they're inside The five it's just a read of Do you die for ETN and Lawrence Keeps it or you protect the edge and ETN just goes right up the middle it's A really effective play so that's something I'm Looking to see if, if Ohio State kind of steals That that look and, and, and does that With with fields because he can move as Just he can move just as well as Lawrence
1: Better arguably Yeah
0: so, as always, got to shout out the kickers. It feels like, I say this in every big game, special teams and kickers, they they matter. They are football players, even if it doesn't always seem like it. They matter a lot in these big games. Clemson's kicker, B.T. Potter, has been effective his whole career there. Ohio State has Blake Aubiel, Blake who seems like he'll he'll be back. But they also have Jake Seibert, who's, who's kicked well this year. It's, you know, it'll come down to, to execution. Neither one of these teams are going to be kicking 60-yard field goals, but it's right. but it's forcing touchbacks. It's making extra points. It's making the, the mid-30s-yard field goals or 41-yard field goals. It's, it's all that little stuff that you don't have empty possessions because uh, those are backbreakers. Agreed. So with all this talk, I still feel like Clemson is going to win this game, but I think it'll be back and forth. Team that has the ball last wins. I think that's how this game will go. I think these are two very evenly matched teams. I have Clemson 38 to 35. Um, but that could easily be Ohio State 38-35. It's I whoever has the ball last is going to win this football game. W- coach, what's your pick? Oof. I think this game comes down to those
1: middle eight minutes, the last four minutes of the second quarter and the first four minutes of the uh, third quarter. That was a big Urban Meyer thing. I think Clemson gets the ball first uh, when Ohio State defers to the second half. I think Ohio State controls the game, lets Clemson back in it, but ultimately wins 31-30.
0: I like it. I like it. I'm just excited that it seems like this is going to be a good, fun, close game because as much talk as we've had about the College World Playoff and what teams should be in there and determining the the top four, so much of the talk about how to make the top four better is because in the past, in the you know, I think this is year six of the College Bowl Playoff, we haven't had a ton of super compelling semifinal games, and it seems like as we're flipping over to the other semifinal. At four o'clock. Las Vegas does not think this is gonna be a very compelling game.
1: Uh, Las Vegas is also what you can call me based on that yeah. opinion. Because I do not think this is gonna be a very compelling game.
0: Alabama's playing Notre Dame at the Rose Bowl Dallas edition. Um Alabama's favored by nineteen and a half points right now. Let's let's go through the same way we did with uh with the with the Clemson-Ohio State game. Let's start with the coaching battle and any bulletin board material provided by the coaches. We also have Nick Saban versus Brian Kelly, the GOAT of college football coaching versus a guy who's just a really, really, really good college football coach. And, you know, he's, I don't want to say he has, he's underperformed in big games, um, but just a guy who hasn't won as many games as Nick Saban in these really big environments, and I think part of the, the the stigma around Brian Kelly and oh, is he a big game coach? Is when they played when these two teams played in the national championship in 2012, and Alabama crushed them, <laughs> and uh, that was just an example of SEC firepower. I I think that this Notre Dame team is better than that 2012 team and I think that I don't think that this is a 20 point spread I think this should be a 14 point spread I think 20 is a lot
1: yeah I I don't know if you look at Brian Kelly and the bowl games he's won at Notre Dame they are the Sun Bowl the Pinstripe Bowl the Music City Bowl, the Citrus Bowl, and the Camping World Bowl last year. Whereas the games he's lost are the Champs Sports Bowl, the BCS National Championship game, the Fiesta Bowl, and the Cotton Bowl. Uh, What are we sensing here?
0: I mean, it's so hard just just to say it all, but what it is is he's been to a lot of bowl games. And so coaches who go to yes. a lot of bowl games win bowl games but and
1: what's the but what's the correlation? The, what's the correlation? The bigger the game, mm-hmm. the more likely the looks. That
0: that is what that is what it seems like. And I don't know if that's directly on him or if it's they haven't had a truly awesome quarterback or just the 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 type of line play to compete at the line of scrimmage with an Alabama or another sec type program, because that's the difference in this year's team, in my opinion, versus the team from 2012 or the team from two years ago that got housed by Clemson in the semifinals, that their offensive and defensive lines are a lot better. Yes. This
1: team's really good. And Ian book is a good quarterback who I'm sure we'll talk about him. And, and he has been really good. I, I just, the talent differential is just remarkable. And, and that matters.
0: It it really, really matters, especially when you have like three of the four Heisman finalists are on the Alabama offense. <laughs> yes. It's, you know, Notre Dame has a top 10 pick in their linebacker uh, crew. It seems like Alabama could have, three top 10 picks like it's you're right. So the
1: the best way to measure talent of rosters Mm -hmm. 24 seven sports has the college football team talent composite. Yeah. And and so Alabama has the second most talented team in the country. Okay. uh, With 985 points. Notre Dame is eighth with 866 points. Mm -hmm. Again, just put it in perspective. On Alabama's roster, there are 12 five-star players. Notre Dame has two five-star players. On Alabama's roster, there are 58 four-star players. On Notre Dame's, there are 44. Okay? Then three stars. Alabama has 13, and Notre Dame has 39. And that's the difference. I- the top-end talent is just... There's so much more top-end talent, blue-chip talent, at Alabama than there is at Notre Dame. and And... and that's why maybe they can compete in a one-off like Notre Dame did against Clemson in the early in this year, but you just can't do it in my opinion.
0: So I'm going to push back on, on what you said about the, the talent difference and relying by the stars of guys in high school. Yes, that matters. There are certain five star guys who come in. They're awesome from the jump and they leave as top flight NFL prospects. we just talked about two of them. In the quarterback matchup for Ohio State and Clemson, but you can talk about how all oh, the three stars and the four stars, both of these starting quarterbacks for this team, are were not highly rated three star recruits. Mac Jones was a was a three star recruit in 2017, sat Good behind point. Jalen Hurts, Tua, uh, you know, beat out a five star Bryce Young this year. He started. He may win the Heisman and be a first round pick. Ian Book, three year starter, incredible winner at Notre Dame. I think he's lost three games in his college career. Maybe it's four now, but basically, just he basically lost to Georgia, Clemson, and Clemson. (laughs) And he's, you know, I don't think he's an NFL prospect of the same caliber as the other three that we've talked about, but he'll be on an NFL roster next year in training camp. Absolutely. And He's a as you said, a very, very good quarterback at the college level. And I think for him it's it's all about, you know playing within himself and not trying to do too much. And we'll talk about the, the quarterback matchup in, in a second, but it's it's not only about the, the the stars in high school. That stuff matters, but you look at a lot of these programs and they get 3 star guys, 4 star guys cuz for whatever reason they fly under the radar or they develop some guy gets hurt or or whatever reason, you know, Notre Dame's best linebacker, top 10 guy, 3 star recruit. You know, so it's it's interesting when you compare the the talent, it's definitely interesting, but I don't think that's the best way to evaluate these guys. I think it's by All-Americans, all conference NFL draft prospects because when you when, when you look at these two teams traditionally, it's that Alabama it feels like their whole offensive and defensive line will get a shot either drafted in the NFL or at least be an undrafted free agent. That was not always the case with, with Notre Dame. And this year their line is much, much better. I think that they have done a really good job developing players. They're They, they are recruiting better under Ryan Kelly. They're competing more for four and five star players, but They're playing a different recruiting game. They're trying because of whatever academic things that they have to do for their kids. You know, it's not the same as a normal student, but it's a higher standard than Alabama. They have to recruit a little differently. They're in South Bend, Indiana, which breaking news for people, it's cold. It's cold in the winter in in South Bend. It's not Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is really, really (laughs) nice pretty much all year round. And so, when you go down to Alabama for a visit and it's December 10th and it's 65 degrees and sunny, and you're practicing outside in shorts and a t shirt, and you go to Notre Dame in December, and all you see is the whites of people's eyes because it's so cold, that's the only thing that their skin that they're showing, right? Like it's different. And so,
1: it, it is, but ultimately, that's the best yeah. measure. I mean, if we want to go by draft picks since 2010, Alabama's had 83 players drafted, including 28 first round picks. Yeah. Notre Dame isn't even in the top 10. Yeah. You know, Brian Kelly has done a good job. He's developed well, but the draft pick shows that Nick Saban has actually developed even better. Yeah. And starting with more talent. So to me, that gap explains why the 19 and a half point uh, line exists.
0: I also want to point out, too, of what we did about Clemson and Ohio State, which is that the line is made so teams bet, so people bet on both sides, so the book always Correct. wins. Sure, sure. Notre, Dame, Notre Dame... money, and no yeah. one wants to put money on Notre Dame. Yeah, and, but the weird part is at 19 and a half, people will put money on Notre Dame. It's like, well, they'll cover that, you know, because Notre Dame is this, for whatever reason, still a cherished icon of college football and college athletics and Huge fan base. They're the only school with their own TV deal, right, on NBC. (laughs) Like, it's crazy when you just look at it about how much people care about their football team for, as you said, doesn't put the most guys in the NFL. They're not recruiting the top five in the high school class the way that some of these other guys are. But people still really care about them. And for this Notre Dame team, who has been through a lot the last let's just say three years under Ian Book. And they proved everyone wrong when they beat Clemson early in the season. Yes, there was no Trevor Lawrence. Yes, Clemson was down a couple guys on defense as well. But they still won the game. Like, pe- like people are forgetting because Clemson dominated them in the AC Championship that Notre Dame beat that team. and yeah, absolutely. And nobody is picking Notre Dame to, to win this game. Absolutely nobody. And... This is a why not us nobody believes in us type game where Notre Dame has nothing to lose. They are expected to get played off the field.
1: See, but I don't I don't I I think that's a valid point but at the same time I don't think it's they have nothing to lose. They do have something to lose. They have the fact that they could get mortally embarrassed. Yeah. Right like they There's a lot of pressure on them. They have to prove that Brian Kelly's big game record is not valid. You know, there is actually, in my opinion, a lot of pressure on them. Mm -hmm. It's different from the pressure on Alabama, which is that you're a heavy favorite. Right. But there's pressure on Notre Dame to say, no, no, no. Look, guys,
0: promise we do belong amongst the elites. Mm -hmm. And that's a fair point. I probably over-exaggerated it, but... We it, all do. We all do. Yeah, but, uh, I'm I'm guilty too. But but also just just in their let's just say nobody believes in us uh, approach to this game is the pressure's all on Alabama. Yes, they have their own pressure to prove that they belong, which is its own type of pressure, but all anything good that they do in this game is gonna be proving the doubters wrong, beating and exceeding expectations where it's, I, we, we both don't think that they're going to win this game. We both are going to pick Alabama. But it's, this is going to be one of those games where if a couple things go their way, that they can hang around in this game. And it's going to come down to, and we're going to talk about this a little later, but, you know, all of the little things, right? It's going to be special teams. It's going to be execution. Can they force a turnover? Mac Jones loves to throw the ball deep. Can they pick off one of those passes? You know, like, can they just st- hang around this game to where Alabama kind of feels the pressure and, you know, it's Alabama. They have played a lot of big games. Who knows if they'll feel the pressure, but Notre Dame just has to put themselves in a spot where they can win the game or at least just have it have a chance to make it interesting that that will be what it takes to really compete because this Alabama team is awesome. You know, they are truly, truly awesome. But Notre Dame is, this is not going to be like the JV team playing the varsity. This is a team that, Hey, their goal is just, Hey, let's just make it close in the fourth quarter and see what could happen.
1: That's fair. That's fair. if they get to that point, then you are correct. There's nothing to lose and they can play free and try Mm. trick plays and, you know go for deep shots and and sell out on blitzes which would be amazing and yeah. super fun to watch i'm i'm into that um i'm just not super
0: optimistic we get there so so let's talk about how how we could get there and just the guys on the field we talked about the quarterbacks both not highly rated recruits just want to remind everyone in the first game we're going to have three two former three star recruits who were not the highest-rated quarterback recruit when they arrived at their school, who won the starting job, versus the five-star battle later on, because it's really (laughs) interesting. Mac Jones may win the Heisman. This dude loves, and when I say love, he loves the big play. He loves chucking the ball deep down the field, and why wouldn't he? He has an awesome group of wide receivers to go catch it, but he he loves the big play. So on the flip side, huge thing for Notre Dame is what we talked about the Ohio State secondary is keep the ball in front. Don't allow the 50 plus yard play, the the 40 plus yard touchdown, you know. Make Mac Jones beat you with underneath stuff and with accuracy. Don't let him just chuck it to DeVonta Smith who is awesome and this is all way easier said than done. I recognize that. Right, right, right. But it's this is going to be so important of try to shorten the game. Make them do long drives. Uh, don't allow the big play, the quick score, because all that does is put more pressure on your offense. And there's already enough pressure on them to prove that they can belong and score with this Alabama team. It's They can't give up 50 points. This can't be a shootout. This game has to be in the 20s or low 30s.
1: Oh, I think that they have to – I think that the best chance to beat Alabama is the way Florida did it, and they don't have the weapons Florida does, but I do think they have really good, reliable tight ends. Like, I really like mm. the kid Mayer.
0: Awesome. He's really good. Um, I think you can do what Florida did, but more methodically, and that's their shot. Does that make
1: sense? Maybe Ain't... not beat them 50 to 49, you're going to have to score 40 points, in my opinion. Interesting.
0: Um, that That's my opinion. Interesting, because we talked about this last week about this game is in, in any game, there's, there's basically two broad approaches you can take, which is we think that we can shut this other team down and prevent them from scoring their usual amount, or we think that we can outscore this team. And... I think Notre Dame is going to go with the we don't think we can outscore this team, but we think that we can contain them enough to give us a shot. Now, when I say a shot, I mean going into the fourth quarter, it's 23 to 13 or 23 to 10. Okay, you know, two scores. Yeah, but but not the what we saw in years past where it's 20, where it's, you know, 38 to 10 going into the fourth quarter where it truly is over um right i
1: I think they're gonna need turnovers like i know i know it's i know everyone's listening going oh thanks captain
0: obviously
1: (laughs) you know like when you talk about the things that determine big upsets and in a 19 and a half point line uh, that's considered a big upset and the turnover battle is as vital as it gets you know you talk about the big play thing that's also part of it I think the turnover battle like
0: Notre Dame has if to Notre win Notre Dame it.
1: wins the turnover battle like they have a chance to really have a chance. I think they have to really win the turnover battle like three to nothing.
0: Yeah. Or just opportunistic turnovers where, hey, a strip right, timing fair timing strip sack to get the ball back in the red zone or the other team's 30 is a lot different than an interception on a deep ball where you get the ball inside your own 20. They're both really, really important and count the same as a turnover. And preventing a score is huge. But, you know, it's college football. It's crazy. As, as much as we say that, you know, Alabama has a talent advantage, the guys in Notre Dame are still really good. They can make plays. They can get a strip Absolutely. sack. You know, all it takes is is one play for a strip sack, scoop and score, pick six on a, on a slant route that all of a sudden Notre Dame, That's in, That's a, they stole six points there. Right. So absolutely. So on the flip side for We're Alabama, going to, have to find that. Yeah. On the flip side for Alabama, it's Ian Book is good, but he is a he's the one. The reason why he's not a pro the way Lawrence is or Jones or Fields is, unless so Fields, because this is Field's main issue, is he doesn't read the game at an nfl level where he goes from progression one through four in three seconds the way that trevor lawrence can he looks at his first read if it's not there he kind of looks for the second but will try to escape the pocket because he is very good with his legs the whole key for alabama is keep ian book in the pocket make him win with his arm and by going through his progressions and making just pinpoint accurate throws all game down the field and make him read the defense. Don't give him anything easy. I'm with you. So, and then on the flip side, it's just like, I don't know. Don't have the <laughs> Heisman Trophy winner be the Heisman Trophy winner because one of the one of the three, and, and we're going to talk about this is Mac Jones, Najee Harris, and Devonta Smith. You know, for for Najee Harris, it's the dude's a monster. <laughs> like he had I don't know how many touchdowns against Florida? Four, five. I lost count.
1: I think five, yeah.
0: I lost count. He's like ETN in that he can run between the tackles, he can run to the outside, he can catch the ball, he's dangerous in space, he's dangerous between the tackles. You can't take away everything. You have to pick your poison and what you're going to live with, and it's really tough when you have three Heisman finalists on the same offense, but whatever they decide to take away, they just have to live with it. You know?
1: I agree. You you make your bed. You got to lie in it. You just hope you made it well.
0: As you know, if, if that means Najee Harris is going to average six yards a carry because they're taking away the deep ball and Devonta Smith so much, then as you said, just got to make, you know, you got to live with it. And as it'll be interesting to see how the line of scrimmage battle goes in this game, whether it's, getting after Mac Jones, not just for forcing turnovers, but just making him uncomfortable because when he was back there against Florida, he was just bing, boom, all down the field. He wasn't really that uncomfortable and he hasn't really been that uncomfortable all year. And any quarterback when they face pressure isn't as good as when they have a clean pocket. So can Notre Dame get a pass rush? Can they compete at the line of scrimmage to prevent the huge holes that Najee Harris is used to seeing against some defenses where he's just like, sure, I'll take these 14 yards right here. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, yes. And I think that sort of goes back to what I was saying about, um, you know, a methodical, you know, Notre Dame team can win this game. Yeah. But it'll be curious to see if Alabama is willing to out methodical Notre Dame. I don't know if that was excellent English <laughs> right there, but, um, roll with me.
0: But it's also, Notre Dame has a good running game as well. Kyron Williams, over 1,000 yards, scored 12 touchdowns. He's also dangerous in the passing game as well. Ian Book can can run. Notre Dame can do themselves a lot of favors by executing on their first and second down runs to get to third and shorts. And, like, as— much as it seems like common sense, like, yeah, Dave, like third and seconds a lot better than third and nine. Thanks. But it's it all adds up and it's weird, but it all adds up. in just in terms of just the whole mentality of your of your team and just everyone watching is like if you're stuck on third and eight a lot. You just don't feel like you're competing at the same way as if it's a third and four, which it's only four yards, but it's it's a really, really important just in terms of how your offense approaches the plate call, how you're feeling about the game, how successful you feel like you are in dictating the way that you want to play. Kyron Williams is the X factor in this game for me because if he can have a big day on the ground and maybe, you know, a couple screen passes, he, he goes pretty, you know, he's able to to get a couple big plays or just solid first downs out of it. That could be huge for this for this Notre Dame team like he had 124 yards against North Carolina. 140 yards the first time against Clemson and and three touchdowns. That's the type of performance that Notre Dame needs out of I may probably their best offensive player instead of the 50 yards they did against Clemson last week where To be fair, the game flow wasn't really in his favor, but they need a big day from Kyron Williams.
1: I think that's a great call, and I think that um, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa
0: is the elite Notre Dame linebacker. Elite. And
1: I think that if he has a great game um, and he's able to make a lot of tackles on Najee Harris and sort of allow everyone else to uh focus on slowing down the passing attack. I know it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. Um obviously, but um that would if he has an unbelievable game and it allows everyone else to sort of play a little bit more freely, I think that is one of the factors. He's my X factor in in if if Notre Dame is going to spring an upset.
0: And then on the flip side, Alabama dominates these non-SEC teams because Their advantage at the line of scrimmage is so great. It's just pure, utter domination. Even against teams like Oklahoma, who are power five conference teams and just can't compete for four quarters against uh, Alabama at the line of scrimmage. This is my whole key to the game. It's all going to be about the line of scrimmage. And you will be able to tell really early on if Notre Dame can compete. With Alabama, the way we were early on, their first matchup against Clemson. And it will tell the whole story of, as you said, if Notre Dame has any chance to pull this upset, it will be they are able to compete and play Alabama to a draw at the line of scrimmage. And if they can win the line of scrimmage, they have a chance to to really win this game or really have a great chance to win. But I think playing to a draw is kind of what they need to, as I said at the beginning, which is just... Make it interesting in the fourth quarter Just be down by enough that, that They have a chance
1: Speaking of the offensive line uh, Of Alabama versus Notre Dame's Defensive line which you were just referring to I found an interesting statistic Notre Dame's defensive line has an Average weight of 276 Pounds Any guess on the average weight of Alabama's Offensive line
0: It's got to be 310
1: 332 Oh my god <laughs> So almost fifty pounds, uh, over fifty pounds heavier, over fifty five pounds heavier, in fact, than the average Notre Dame defensive lineman. And I know it's not quite yeah. that simple, um, but that's that is crazy. An enormous offensive line.
0: Wow. Well. Wow. So <laughs> that's why Alabama has like five offensive linemen. Their starting five is all going to be pros. They're just they're just they literally are just built like professional football players. And I think
1: they have the the two highest rated offensive linemen in the class of twenty twenty one committed and signed and JC Latham and Tommy Brockenmeyer. Yeah. So it's only getting better.
0: Yeah, they're you know, iron sharpens iron. But uh as we talked about for Clemson and Ohio State, red zone execution will be huge in this game. It always feels like for Alabama and in huge games, their kicker does something to miss. <laughs> And and that doesn't you know I'm not critis- trying to be un, you know un- unjustly c- critical of, of their kickers in the past, but because they play so many big games, a missed extra point against a really good team can come back to haunt them more than than another team just because they're there so frequently. But kicker execution in this is going to be so big because Notre Dame can't come up empty when they're in scoring positions. They have to almost be perfect execution wise. <coughs> And Alabama does as well because they can't give uh, Notre Dame any hope where even if they miss a field goal or something, you can't have a block. You can't have a block right. return. It's, right. like, it's like it's that type of execution. Bad penalties on kicks where it's a false start that brings you five yards back. That just makes it more difficult. Stuff like that. Alabama just needs to execute. And Notre Dame needs to score. It's, it's kind of different. And just like Ohio State, but even more so, if Notre Dame is in a scoring position in the red zone, they need to score a touchdown. They have to have red zone cri- touchdown credit. execution. It is as as you said it's you just said, as critical as anything else in this game is they have to score touchdowns. Because Alabama will score touchdowns. Yeah,
1: undoubtedly. <laughs> and and quickly,
0: they will quickly score touchdowns. (laughs) Yes, very quickly, which is the scariest part about this Alabama team. So, as much as I'm trying to talk Notre Dame into being able to compete in this game and keep it close and everything, I think Alabama's going to win this game 48-27. I think their offense just has way too many weapons from Mac Jones to Najee Harris to Devonta Smith to, you know, the guys who we haven't talked about really at all, which is kind of crazy that we haven't, you know, you focus so much on those three guys because they are so good. Like Mac Jones completing over 76% of his passes, over 3,700 yards, 32 touchdowns in the SEC. Like they played an extra SEC game this year. Naj- <laughs> Najee Harris, 1,500 yards from scrimmage, 20, 27 total touchdowns in the SEC. You know, it's it's just you know, Devonta Smith, fifteen hundred receiving yards, eighteen touchdowns in the SEC. Like
1: And likely the first Heisman Trophy winner to be uh a wide receiver since uh oh gosh, what are we
0: talking? Is that like, Desmond Howard? Yeah. But like John Mechie is also really good. Like yeah. like they just have so many weapons that it's it's kind of annoying. Because you want to give everyone their no, it's like you want to give everyone their proper respect because they all are really good. But it's also like it kind of is annoying as as a fan of parody and uh, true competition. We're just like, wait, who scored that fourth touchdown for Alabama? Oh, that that wasn't their Heisman Trophy Finals. That's just some true freshman who's gonna dominate on the field for the next two years It'll after this. Is. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, they're just a—they're uh, just a ridiculous offensive team. Just the talent, Then also on defense, they have Christian Harris. They have Dylan Moses, who will be a first-round pick. Like, they just have guys, right? Like, yeah, they're
1: loaded. They're just absolutely loaded.
0: Will Anderson Five. has seven sacks. Christopher Allen six sacks. Those guys, I don't believe are draft eligible. I think they're sophomores. It's—it's it's crazy. Who do you and- think is going to win?
1: Yeah, that's why I have Alabama and I have Alabama big uh 56 to 20.
0: Ooh. That is big. 56, wow. 56 is just a lot of points, but Alabama scores a lot of points.
1: Yeah, and they just they're such a quick strike offense that I just think it's uh the type of thing they're capable of.
0: So those are our predictions. It's you have Ohio State, I have Clemson, we both have Alabama. It will either be Ohio, you know, according to us, it will either be Ohio State, Alabama, or, what is it, Clemson, Alabama five, six, seven, 6, <laughs> wh- whatever it is. Never uh,
1: seen that one before.
0: Yeah, it's... Anyway, one of the things that we like to talk about on the show is the coaching carousel. Auburn filled their head coaching position this week. They to replace the fired Gus Malzahn, who I don't really know why they fired him. I thought he was a good coach, but I digress. They hired Boise State's head coach, Brian Harson, who was really, really successful there. Really, uh, He took over for Chris Peterson, really good coach who kept Boise State at the top of the group of five rankings, one of the best, I don't want to say mid-major college football teams, but non-traditional powers, let's say, non-Power 5 conference teams. Uh what do you think of this of this hire?
1: You know, I think it's good hire um I think Brian Harson's a really good coach. I think he wanted something like this. He had been pushing for Boise State to move conferences mm-hmm. uh, to sort of get the level of respect and competition that I think they deserved and needed. having said that they did not have the best year this year um granted there were quite a few uh. Hurdles we all faced. Mm. So I I understand it, but, um, you know, I don't think they won the Mountain West. Um, They, but Brian Harson's been really good. Um, Boise State head coaches have gone on and been really successful in the case of Chris Peterson and um, less successful
0: in the case of Dan Hawkins. So
1: uh, I'm curious to see who, uh, where Brian Harson fits. I know each of the past two weeks we've talked about. Um, hiring a former Nick Saban assistant,
0: and, and they obviously did not do that. Yeah, uh,
1: I think the the right candidate for the job was Mario Cristobal, but obviously he was not taking the job after just re-signing with Oregon. Um, it was interesting to see that Steve Sarkeesian got a lot of a lot of talk. The thing that's interesting to me, additionally, is that Kellen Moore, the offensive coordinator for the Cowboys. Um, and Boise State's probably best player ever, is getting a lot of talk right now as the guy who's likely to fill Harson's spot. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll be really interesting to see um how he with very I don't believe he has any college coaching experience, um if he... you know, he maybe has just a year or two, um, how he would do if he could keep Boise State rolling or not.
0: It's it's really interesting because As It was 15 years ago or so when when Boise State beat Oklahoma. It was 2007, so, so, so 13 years ago, where they kind of just burst onto the map. And then for a few years with Kellen Moore, they were right in the discussion for the BCS. They were one of the schools that really was pushing and got kind of like the nation around, we need to expand this, the BCS, we need to get more than two teams because Boise State would be undefeated, but they would always be third, you know, Kellen Moore finished his career fifty and three. Like <laughs> that's just absurd. And so they get a lot of credit for that now. Obviously, we've talked about it at, at length about how, you know, the, the current playoff system doesn't necessarily let's just say value the group of five schedules the same way as uh as a power five schedule. But, you know, that's that's you right. know that's just the way it is right now it's but that doesn't mean Brian Harson's not a good coach he's done a lot of really good things with Boise State 69
1: 16 at Boise State 45 and 8 in conference i mean he's won and he's won a lot
0: and in order to win you need to recruit especially in football not just recruit you need to recruit and develop but recruiting to Boise State is a completely different sport than recruiting to the SEC and Auburn because it's not just that you're recruiting a different caliber of player. It's that the eighth best recruiting class in the country will be a disappointment because Alabama, Georgia, LSU, and Florida were all in the top seven ahead of you because you have the fifth best recruiting class. And so it's just really interesting that they went for a non... As much as I really like Brian Harson. It's just interesting that they went for a non-power five guy because of the recruiting part of you're recruiting against Alabama, you're recruiting against Coach O and LSU, and against Florida and Georgia, and right because that's the battles initially that you have to win because at Auburn all you're judged with is against Alabama, and so either Brian Harson's going to take Auburn to the level where they're truly competing for SC championships every single year and are one and two with Alabama, or there's going to be a group of Auburn fans for whatever reason, just like they did that Gus Malzahn wasn't the right guy where it's like, we don't like coach Harson because he's only getting the 11th best recruiting class in the country, but it's, Fifth in the SEC like it's just crazy how competitive SEC football is that, that we're even talking about a guy who being by all accounts really successful but not successful enough
1: right it, well the other interesting thing is so like his prior head coaching experience to Boise State was at Arkansas State where mm-hmm. then, like, he followed Gus Malzahn yeah. um, which so he does have head coaching experience within the SEC footprint before Arkansas State, he spent two years as the offensive coordinator and play caller at Texas. So I wonder if they feel that between his ability to win games in Boise, Idaho, and the fact that he did spend three years in that Texas SEC footprint, he can pull his own. I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I think part of it is also that they I, – I, 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 I'm not sure – he was their first choice.
0: Yeah. That that's probably very true. And you've been on the, the, the Oregon coach Mario uh Crystal Ball, who's literally as all the rumors started Oregon and all the, the powers that be there were like, Yeah, you're not going anywhere. You're getting a six year extension, twenty plus million dollars. Uh they were like, We're not even gonna let you entertain the the Twitter rumors like you're staying put. Uh, which you have to do when you have a Really good head coach he who's a very good recruiter. I think Kellen Moore would be really interesting at Boise. He's never coached in college. When he retired from the NFL, he became the Dallas Cowboys' quarterbacks coach, and now I was right. yeah, and has now moved up to the offensive coordinator position. I don't know how their team is structured and, and who's calling plays and stuff, but but he's the offensive coordinator. I think it would be really cool to see have him back at that blue field where he won so many games because he gets it right, like he gets the Boise State thing. He knows how to be, uh, he knows how to be a winner there—not just successful, but a true winner. And especially if Boise State changes conferences again, they having a legend at the helm can help with recruiting. It can just help with just the overall way that the team is covered in the national media. Uh, I think that would be really interesting, and I'm kind of rooting for it now.
1: Yeah, I, I think that would be a really interesting fit. The other one, uh, Andy Avalos, was mm. the longtime defensive coordinator who's been with Oregon the past couple years and done a really good job at Oregon. He obviously makes sense um, at Boise uh, State as well as the head coach. So I think that there's um, – that that's an interesting search. That's what, I, mean, I mean, Auburn's search was interesting mm. too, but, but Boise's interesting for, I think, a different reason because there's a lot more clear-cut candidates than maybe – uh, what what feels like a very wide-open search for Auburn.
0: Arizona hired Jed Fish, the Patriots quarterback's coach, which I think is really interesting because it's this really young guy going to this Pac-12 program to lead the charge. He's never been a head coach before at the college or professional level. Um, I thought that was a really intriguing decision. No idea if it's going to work out or not because I know very little about Jed Fish, and I think a lot of people don't know a lot about him either, just because he's he's a really young coach. And So,
1: yeah, so he's 44 years old, and he was actually born in Livingston, New Jersey, which is where I grew up. So Shout out, shout out Jersey. Shout out, Livingston, New Jersey. Um, though he attended Hanover Park High School, not Livingston High School, so I feel, <laughs> like it's, I feel, I feel somewhat spurned. But, um, you know, Jed Fish is one of those guys who's not been... At any place more than a couple years, he sort of moved everywhere. Um, I remember he went from he he was Michigan's passing game coordinator and wide receivers coach, and then he was a big hire uh, by UCLA. I want to say that was uh, Chip Kelly brought him in. Mm -hmm. Um, Nope, just kidding. He was brought in by uh, Jim Jim Mora. Jim Mora, right? Yeah, Jim Mora Jr. So I take it back, but he's got a lot of NFL experience. Um, you know, he, he has some college experience, like I mentioned, but he's also been with the Texans, the Ravens, the Broncos, the Seahawks, the Jaguars, the Rams, the Rams, the Patriots. Um, so I I wonder if Arizona is saying, Hey, we brought in a college coach last time. Let's try, uh, this guy. He does have some PAC 12 experience in West coast roots. Um, Let's see if a young, energetic dude can can get it done.
0: What I think is really interesting about this is being a quarterback's coach, and he's an offensive-minded coach from all his various stops, is the University of Arizona, and just Arizona in general, don't want to talk too much about geography, but it's very close to California, and specifically yep. Southern California, which traditionally has tons and tons of really good quarterback prospects. And so... I'm wondering if if he can get a couple quarterbacks from the California area, get them to come to the U of A, which by all accounts, you know, I've never been, but by all accounts is a beautiful school. It's a fun school to be at. It has great weather and it's just a really fun place to go to college and be an awesome athlete, especially that because you're like the school in Arizona, it's like going to Ohio State, but with better weather. That it's with his offense in the Pac 12, if they can start up a spread offense, air raid type, and just be a really fun place to play and put up tons and tons of points. Like I'm thinking, like Texas Tech West under uh, Cliff Kingsbury, where all of a sudden, even if their quarterbacks aren't going pro, Their transfers are dominating at at other places. Just like become like West Coast Texas Tech and just be a really, really fun team that goes eight and five or seven and six every year. But you're winning and playing games like 65 to 61.
1: For sure. And I think that they are going to have to recruit Arizona, but I also think that, uh, excuse me, California. But I also think we're
0: underrating how much talent there is in Arizona. Arizona is huge. Yeah. Arizona,
1: if you look at the shifting demographics, I mean, this year they had seven blue chip guys, six top 300 guys, none of them committed to an in-state school. Mm -hmm. The Arizona state has the 14th ranked player in the, in the state. I don't think Arizona has the 19th ranked player in the state. That's their, you know, their highest in-state guy. Like that's a problem Mm -hmm. when, you know, Ohio state and Texas and, 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 everyone are going into your state you got to figure it out in the class of 2020 there were multiple five-star prospects and let's see here there were eight top 300 prospects and 10 four-star prospects not a single one went to arizona the highest ranked player to stay in state was the number 20 player in the state to go to arizona like that's a huge issue and you can't let Georgia, Texas, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Washington, Florida State, UCLA, Colorado come in and take your best players right from under your nose when you have everything you have to offer, like you pointed out.
0: The Now, it would be foolish to expect this to happen overnight, but the comparison I would make for them, for where they, they should be trying to get to a, as a program recruiting-wise, is try to emulate the LSU model under Coach O and Les Miles, which is... For the most part, now it doesn't happen 100% of the time, but for the most part, Louisiana, which has very good high school football, that the best players in Louisiana stay home and they go to LSU. Yep. Doesn't happen all the time, but, you know, for, for the most part, those guys stay home. They're really, really good at getting in-state kids to stay home and to go to LSU. As you said, that should be Arizona's focus, is really recruiting Arizona and California really, really hard and protecting as you said, protecting their state so that Texas M's not coming in with Jimbo Fisher and just poaching these guys or Exactly. You know, it's it's gonna take a while, but as long as they give Coach Fish enough rope to really build and, and develop something, they have a chance because of the fertile recruiting grounds, the advantage for being a huge state university that really cares about sports, uh great weather, good recruiting proximity because they're also close to Texas which is a big recruiting hotbed for the whole country absolutely it's really interesting and you mentioned a bunch of coordinators for how to replace all these jobs who are now people going across the country a couple coordinators unfortunately lost their jobs but that means that there are some openings as well specifically the LSU coordinators and Michigan's defensive coordinator because as we're seeing one of the best ways to become a head coach at the college level and the professional level, but especially at the college level, is be an awesome coordinator for a power school, have a great year, and go get your own program. Yep. And so LSU's defensive coordinator job is available. I think their offensive coordinator job is available. I'm not 100% certain on that, but I know their defensive coordinator is and Michigan's is. If you go to Michigan and you recruit really well because it's Michigan and you build a good defense in two years that is one of the best defenses in the Big Ten – you will get a head coaching job if you want one. Same thing at LSU. And so I think those openings are really interesting if they're bounce-back guys, kind of like Steve Sarkeesian, who kind of just need uh, some years to just get back in coaching and to build up better graces and kind of earn another job. Or if it's a young, hotshot guy like Joe Brady was at LSU two years ago when they won the national championship. I think these coordinator jobs... Will be really interesting names to jot down and keep an eye on. Not for this upcoming season, but for three or four years down the road. Of how are they doing, and will they be in discussions for other head coach openings in the future?
1: I think that's an excellent point, and I also think they matter short term, right?
0: Because yeah, Ed they do. Ed
1: Orgeron had great coordinators and went from and won the national championship, and then Bo Pelini was a disaster, and all of a sudden. You know, amongst off the field issues, Cocho's job is not as safe as it was a couple months ago. So that's very true. Um, I, I do think it's an important short term hire as well.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's very important short term, and just for the but national, the name very casual to keep an fan. Eye on, yeah, I
1: agree with you. I agree with you. Like the defensive coordinator at Michigan, if he does well, should be a candidate for every mid-American conference job that opens you, you know like yeah
0: so that'll do it for this episode coach i'm so pumped that one your team is in the playoff because you're it's it's always great talking to someone who really not, not just enjoys college it really feels like they have something at stake this week and you do i know how into it you get you know what is your game plan uh right now for Friday? What's the food looking like? What's the television <laughs> setup? Are you phone and laptop for Twitter? Are you alone with people, you know, socially distanced COVID of course, but what's the plan for Friday? You know, I, I think that what I
1: normally like to do for big games now that I live in Hoboken is I liked going out to a bar for the first half to sort of get a feel for the energy and stuff. And then I would come back and watch the second half Back in my apartment, where I sort of could react how I wanted to react without <laughs> the public repercussions. But this year, we're going to be in the apartment. I think we're going to make uh, elite use of the air fryer. Ooh. Uh, big, big. We got to get an air fryer to sponsor this pod, man. Like the air fryer, that's where it's at. Um, so maybe we're going to look into some wings, maybe some ribs in the slow cooker if we're trying to go multiple appliances here. But Um, you know, I think my biggest thing and I'll admit it is, is I have, you know, I rotate out what shirts or jerseys I'm going to wear. Um, you know, I, I, find that my Terrell Pryor uh, scarlet Jersey is, is, has been a pretty lucky one though. Admittedly, I did wear that to the Penn state game that they lost in 2016. Um, so, so that one still stings a little bit, but I have my Buckeye. Beads necklace ready to go. I have a couple different hats ready to go. I have a couple different T-shirts to go under the jersey in case okay. the
0: jersey needs to come off. If we need to just switch up some mojo or momentum. In case so, of chicken wing sauce, you know, buffalo sauce uh spills, you know, you know prepare Dirty does not matter. Winning <laughs> or
1: losing matters here. So, so we're gonna roll with the stains if we're scoring touchdowns. But, but if we're if we're stalling out at the five yard line and missing field goals. Then we're taking the, the jersey off. Then
0: we're gonna go to a t shirt, or maybe we pull out the Ted Ginn or the Troy. Smith <laughs> or, you know, you know we,
1: we or you know maybe we, I go back and borrow my brother's Beanie Wells jersey. Like, yep. You do what you gotta do, man. Right, like that. One
0: hundred percent.
1: I I I I can't imagine Ryan Day is doing anything right now except game planning and then falling asleep at night saying, "I appreciate how much." Max Sass is helping us out with all of his sacrifices. So um, I'm going to keep
0: thinking that. Well, not only do we need to get, you know, first of all, fryers have had a great year. And just as a part of this year, we, we've talked about the college football player empowerment has really come, right? The player empowerment has come to college football. Definitely. And one of the things that I've really liked is players are now not afraid to to speak their minds. And they've been doing this on really important societal issues, which is great to see, but also on other just really fun stuff as well. So I don't know if you saw this, I'm going to read this out, but talking about air fryers and college football disconnects, Georgia's Jordan Davis, Georgia is playing, I believe in, in the peach bowl for, for these bowl games, they all have corporate sponsors. So that's a part of it. All these guys <laughs> kind of get like gift bags, right? Even though they're, Let's just say it with me, Coach. "Quote unquote," amateurs that uh, apparently they're not getting that much this this bowl season. So this is what he said on on when when asked about what's get lost this bowl season. He said, "Quote: I'm going to miss the bowl gifts because I wanted to get my mom an air fryer this year. I'll probably have to get her something for her birthday. Bowl gifts were really going to cover me if they had it if they had an air fryer."
1: (laughs) I did not see that quote. That's amazing. (coughs) That's awesome! I love the honesty, and you know what? Great gift for his mom. Air fryer is a tremendous gift.
0: So, so that so that's going to do it for for this episode. Coach, enjoy the games on Friday. We'll be I'm sure we'll be texting throughout uh, the games, but uh, enjoy it. Try to enjoy the Notre Dame Alabama game, but you know, David, yeah. David,
1: I appreciate you trying to sign off. Uh huh. I need you to acknowledge the fact that Coastal Carolina lost to Liberty on the air. Oh yeah. So you can edit this out. So
0: so my clears. we had a great run. The mullets the mullets the mullets had a great year. We we proved that you don't need to schedule games five years out and still have really compelling football games like they did against BYU. They proved that crazy things happened in college football. But we battled, but we did lose. We will not declare ourselves national champions this year. My text to you about how we wanted Alabama was premature. <laughs> but, but it was a great game. Everyone, a, anyone who watched Coastal Carolina versus Liberty, which I just want to point out for people who who may not have known that's the reason why Coastal Carolina played BYU this year was because. Liberty had COVID issues in their program, and Coastal and Liberty were scheduled to play that week. And so that game got canceled, and so Coastal went and booked BYU and played BYU. So this was kind of a rematch of sorts or a rescheduling of sorts. It was a great game. I was proud to be a Chanticleer fan this season. really like their quarterback, Grayson McCall. Uh, We'll be back. That's all I want to say. Are you growing a mullet? Or, or is this one of those
1: relationships that burns hot but burns fast? Like, how how loyal
0: are you? This is more of a they're on ESPN U at noon, and it's really fun and, and entertaining. Uh, okay, <laughs> but but I'll check back in next year and and see how and, and see how they're doing. I just want to point out, Coastal Carolina has a great athletic history. They won the Division One baseball national championship in twenty sixteen. Like, they oh, really? are yeah they they've, they they. You know, the mullets get a lot of jokes on Twitter, but they they perform. They are a good athletic program and uh
1: results
0: oriented. Re- results oriented, but yes, my Chanta Clears uh will not be in the top fifteen in the final cultural playoff rankings. <laughs> no national championship banners, but we did get a Sunbelt uh banner, so so And they may be in the top
1: ten of Dabo's final rankings. Yes, ahead of Ohio
0: State. <laughs> it would be great if Ohio State beats Clemson. And Davos was like, They're not even the best team in Ohio. Cincinnati's better. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we had them ranked. So, anyway, I'm sorry to no, no, no. force you into like a soliloquy on your
1: your your affair with the Chanticleers, but
0: No, it's it's good. I, I you know, I have to I can't talk about the Chanticleers all year and how they deserve a shot without uh without acknowledging <laughs> that that they lost. So I was just so excited to talk about the the playoff games and some of the coaches' stuff I got distracted, but thank you for the Fair. reminder. Coach, enjoy the games on Friday. We'll be texting throughout and uh hopefully they're they're both as exciting as, as we hope that as we dream that the games will be.
1: Me too. I hope so. Thanks for having me on, Dave. And uh, hopefully the games are, are, are good ones.
0: That'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, Where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. And also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We will be back next week. Take care. Have a very happy new year and make it a great day.